up and welcome back to the Things We Make podcast. I'm your host, Keen Angle from DeliverableCoaching.com. We are back after a short two-week break, and in case you're a first-time listener, the Things We Make podcast is all about talking with the top thinkers and doers in the marketing and advertising worlds to uncover how they make it happen. On today's episode, I chat with Marie Pavlich. For the last 15 years, Marie has helped grow brands of all shapes and sizes. Her former stomping grounds include various agencies and media companies such as the Stop Motion Animation Studio behind the award-winning show Robot Chicken. Marie currently runs her own brand consultancy called Focus and Flow Branding, which demystifies branding for new and starting businesses. Let's jump in and hear what Marie has to say about the things we make. Let's start out with one quick thing. So I, I've been reading some weird conspiracy theories that are going on on the internet right now about how like 5G cell towers are responsible for COVID and just weird stuff. And so I'm wondering, out of all the conspiracy theories you've ever heard, like ever, which ones do you think might actually be true? Well, there's definitely some secret societies going on. I just don't know which ones, you know what I mean? Like there's definitely some secret societies like running, running everything that we have going on. Like lizard, lizard people, or just yeah, like regular for sure. people? <laughs> Why not lizard people? Why not lizard people? I mean, how about like it's not a conspiracy theory, but like I love avocados, and I know that I'm supporting the cartel. So, like, how does mm. where does that fall in like the conspiracy theories, or is that just like I don't know? I, I think it just might might be like a fact. True. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> let's let's chat a bit about your origin story. What do you do, and how did you end up doing it? origin story, I started in marketing in Chicago at a startup that was maybe a little bit ahead of its time, but their their whole goal was to create entertainment properties where you told the story in several different mediums. It was this idea very early stages and around like 2005, 2008, where people were starting to think like, how can we make entertainment more interactive? And so I was in branding in that company And my job was to help these writers, these creatives develop entertainment properties that would stand out and be different from everything else that was happening. And it was it was kids entertainment properties. So I probably knew more about preschool TV shows at that time than I do now that I have a toddler. And it was really interesting. And so I got to do a lot of really cool branding work very early on in my career. Uh, And then I went into agencies and worked in several different smaller agencies in Chicago, ended up at 360i where I worked with you, Keen, on several accounts, including craft accounts like Oscar Mayer and, and Nestle accounts. And then from there, ended up going into some consulting freelancing work and, and actually starting my own business called Focus and Flow Branding, which is really geared towards entrepreneurs, small startup businesses that are trying to create the foundation for their brand. So that's what I've been working on. And I got inspired to do that because I was doing some consulting and it became very apparent to me that you could spend an amazing amount of time talking about a brand without ever making decisions and moving forward. And as I was looking at at these startups, people who are just starting a business who don't have that kind of time or money, I started asking myself, how are they approaching that? Like, how are they actually getting to a brand that makes sense and that is consistent if the resources that are oftentimes out there or the companies that that are working with them are making it so complex? And so I just started to think about, like, if we could pull just a few key elements out and kind of focus branding for these really startup companies, what would that look like? So what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes that you see smaller brands make when trying to define their brands? 
the biggest issue is not taking the time to just write down and put some words around what their brand is. Oftentimes when smaller brands are starting, the person who is starting the brand kind of is the brand, whether it's a product or a service, their personality, the things they like, they encompass the brand. And so they make good gut decisions. They know who their brand is. But if they don't take the time to say, okay, if I were going to define what my top three values are, they would be X, Y, Z. If I was going to define what my audience is, it would be this. If I was going to define how I'm different, what my point of differentiation is from all of my competitors, it's this. So, so that's one of the biggest issues is just not taking the time. And then the second one is kind of that last thing I was talking about, the point of differentiation. People just often don't take the time to think about what their offering is, is different from the other people that are offering that thing. And, you know, oftentimes it's more of an intangible than anything else because there are X amount of speaking coaches or that sort of thing. But if you understand how your point of view is unique, it's a lot easier for you to talk about yourself to media in your marketing materials, all that sort of thing. So I think those are the, the two biggest ones. Just one, just not taking the time. And two, not doing a little bit of research and putting some thought around how you are different from the rest of the market that's out there, the rest of the competitors that are out there. So I think that's funny. You should bring that up. And I've seen a similar thing in my time working with, you know, smaller brands and startups and things like that. I've also written a lot of pitch decks and you'd be surprised about how many don't really go <laughs> into the whole differentiation thing on to, you know, set yourself apart from the pack. You mentioned that a lot of brands usually find something intangible. Is it as easy as saying, okay, we're just going to make up something and just kind of try and own it? Or do you have recommend kind of a process or a way of getting there? I'm constantly surprised how often I see smaller brands not taking the time to get to know who their competitors are, looking at what other people are doing, how they are doing it, and how you are maybe doing something different or the same, and kind of finding that place where you're different. Because again, like your point of differentiation can be how you actually make the product. It can be how you deliver the product. It can be what you stand for or what your product is giving back to. There's so many different ways that your product can differentiate. And the best way to get to that is just to understand who else is out there and spend the time to do some of that research. And you mentioned earlier something about a decision matrix as a way of yeah. smaller or of brands being able to make decisions. Talk a bit more about that and, and kind yeah. of the importance of one of those things, and especially when in defining a point of differentiation. As I mentioned before, one of the biggest mistakes that brands make is they don't take the time to actually sit down and, and write down, you know, who is my brand. Part of the reason people don't do that is they just don't have the time or they don't prioritize the time to do that. And so one of the things I've been doing is, is kind of workshops where I take people through a very quick, like three hour, hey, let's go through and you are going to write down from your own perspective, your target audience your values, your point of differentiation, and your mission and vision. It's extremely aggressive to try and do that in three hours. But again, for many of these brands, the person ends up kind of being the brand, again, whether it's product or service. So they have some of that in their head, and they at least need to get it down on paper. That's a starting point. The way that I've been doing it is by actually having people put it into a decision matrix. So you have a one-sheeter where you've written down your audience, your point of differentiation, your values. I try and keep them to three. And then your mission and vision. And the point of that is then every time you're making a decision, you are looking through each of those and kind of saying, is this a red yellow or green for each of these decisions? Like, does this decision match up exactly with my target audience? Does this decision match up exactly with my values? And a lot of the decisions don't like, you know, some are, it's like green for target audience, but maybe it's like 
yellow on your mission or vision because your mission and vision is is much loftier and this is just about awareness. And that's fine. It's less so having a decision matrix to say like you have to get greens all across the board in order to move forward with the decision and more so about making that part of your routine when you're making decisions so that you can either say to yourself, hey, I know why I've made that decision. I know where it, you know, why it fits for me, where maybe it doesn't fit as much. It helps you for just moving on yourself, saying like, okay, I've made that decision. I can move on to the next thing for my business. It helps you if you have investors so that you can have a conversation with them and say, I made this decision because of X, Y, and Z. The third way it helps is if you have partners, because again, a lot of people will interpret things a little bit differently. And if you have this decision matrix where you've written down your, those five or six things, you can, you at least have a framework for having the conversation. And you may not agree on the way that either one of you has translated what, how it fits for the audience or how it fits towards your mission and vision, but you have a starting point for that discussion. Do you think there's something to say about bringing this idea of distillation and, and simplifying brands down to, I mean, you mentioned it, what, only a couple of pages or something yeah. is the, uh, yeah. the, the output of this? Do you think there's something to be said about big brands bringing a little bit of that into their ethos with regards to defining their brand? Are the worlds mutually exclusive or do you think that one can learn from the other or what do you think? I think that big brands could learn from the idea of getting more simplified. It's the same as editing, right? Editing is harder than writing sometimes. Getting to the shorter essay is harder than writing the five-page essay because you have to actually decide what you're cutting out. If you can get to a brand book that actually can live on people's desk, if you could get to a brand one pager that could be on everyone's desk so that everybody knows every time they're making a decision, these are the things I need to at least be checking off against. All of a sudden it becomes easier for more people to understand what you are trying to do. It becomes easier for you to roll out your brand to more people. One of the issues that happens with big brands so often is that you do have these 30 page brand books that have a lot of really great information in them. However, not everyone can be an expert in that brand book and not even the marketing department. I mean, frankly, I've worked with many brand managers who it's like, we worked on this 30 page book. It is too overwhelming for me to even like consider it when I'm making a decision or I am going to consider every single page when I'm making a decision. So I'll never make a decision. And that's why we go into 17 rounds of testing. And hey, by the way, we need to have all 10 of these people in a meeting because I don't feel confident making the decision because I don't know what does page 13 of this brand book mean. And, and I think that the agencies should be thinking about, I think overall, because we have access to so much more information now, our industry, the advertising and, and marketing industry and, and the consultants and the agencies have made it super complex. And part of that is because it can be more complex. We can understand so much more about people. But part of that is also doing a disservice to people who just need to have a foundation for their brand. Do you think agencies are guilty of kind of mystifying the brand building process to big brands? Yes. Yes, I do think that. And again, I think part of it is because we have the ability to spend all this time understanding all this data and you can make it super complex and you could make a brand where you understood how to talk about the brand to every single person in the world. It just doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't, it's not a useful thing for people to use every single day. What is something that brands usually get wrong when they're building their brands? I think trying to be for too many people. Or, or for too broad of a set of people, I'm for women. Even if, even if you're a feminine product, you're not for all women. 
going too broad on your audience and and having that one story to yourself. You're like, well, there was this one person who's not in my audience set that did buy this product. So I don't want to forget about them. And then kind of getting like wound up in that. I think that's one piece. I do think not knowing how you're differentiated or not taking a stance on how you're differentiated is the other big problem. Part of it is knowing, but you know, a sock is a sock is a sock. You know, like happy socks versus bombas are very different. They're both just socks. However, they have differentiated in their brands. One's about fun and design and style. And the other is like about performance and ease and efficiency. And, and again, they're both just socks, but they've taken the time to define how they are different. And then they're consistent with that. Is there a correlation between the simplicity of a brand and how, how it is versus the speed of which an organization acts upon the definition of that brand? So does, does complexity mm-hmm. correlate with slow decisions and simplicity correlate with faster decisions? Or is it just kind of up to the people who are interpreting it, do you think? I think that, yes, simplicity helps make faster decisions. And and the more complex it is, the harder it is to make decisions. But I think there's also an element of confidence that goes above that. If you have a confident person or somebody who is confident in understanding their brand, and it's a much more complex brand, you know, you've worked with brand managers, right, who have complex brands that have many different elements to them, who have been able to make decisions faster. There's, There's an element of confidence that goes in there. And that's why I end up also working with a lot of female entrepreneurs. And and that's why I think I see more decision paralysis in female entrepreneurs. I think it's something that we have to work a little bit harder at. And this is, this is not from any scientific research or anything like that. More so decision-making was something I was less confident in, in my early career. Uh, And I would see male colleagues feeling very confident or female colleagues who had more experience behind them seeming very confident in making decisions. And I think that's part of why I got a little bit obsessed with the idea of like, how do you make good decisions? How do you move quickly on decisions? Was just that that was something that that I was not as confident in earlier on. So I think to answer your question, yes, simplicity and having a more simplified brand foundation, I do believe that it makes it easier to make decisions. But I think that then on top of it, there's an element of feeling confident in what your brand is. And I think the simpler your brand is, the easier it is to feel confident that you understand how to make the decisions for your brand. You mentioned a kind of a gender role almost in the speed of, of yeah. uh, or not a gender role, but a gender bias, I guess, in yeah. the speed of decisions. Where do you think that comes from? I think that it comes from how perfect you feel like you need to be in order to be successful. And I think there are many women who feel like they need to be right all the time versus feeling confident that if they make a wrong decision, they will be able to just move past it. Because I think that's one of the ways that you grow confidence is by doing something and it might be right or it might be wrong. You learn from your mistakes. And I think that there is a bit of a gender bias in how comfortable you are in making mistakes in the business corporate environment. If you feel comfortable failing, that's confidence, right? And I think that there is a bit of a differentiation in how women have felt about being able to like fail in the workplace. I love that definition of confidence. If you feel comfortable failing, you're confident. And I I couldn't agree more. So for someone who isn't confident in failing or isn't comfortable failing, what would you recommend to them to get comfortable with failing? Know what your values are. Because if you know what your values are, 
even if you fail, you are able to say to yourself, I made that decision because I am a person who takes chances. I'm a person who, whatever it is, uh, for example, I moved from Chicago to Los Angeles with 360i. And I spent a lot of time actually like researching decision-making. I was like, how do I know if I'm making the right decision? I was being paralyzed by this idea of like, am I going to fail at this decision? Am I going to make the wrong one? And when I was able to tie the decision back to a value for myself, it made it easier for me to move past that. And so I think understanding the values for your brand helps you get more confident. And then I think the other side is just knowing that no matter how bad you fail, there are after time, things will change. And you may not be the CEO or whatever, but things will continue to move forward and you will be able to learn from your failures. One thing that popped out was this idea of your your outcome of the decision yeah. could be a failure, but the decision itself, the act of the decision, if it aligns with what you personally believe in or what your brand personally believes in, then the decision itself was still a success, right, even though exactly. the outcome may have been a failure. That's a really interesting way of looking at decisions in both in your personal and professional life. I love that. So looking forward to the future, what are you most optimistic about both personally and professionally? It's a big question because I feel like everything's kind of been cracked open in the last three months, starting with quarantine, making us relook at how we work and how we interact and, and just how we're buying and consuming products. And then the Black Lives Matter movement gaining a larger audience and making us relook at just the systems in our country that are inherently racist and lack equity. But I think as a brand strategist and a marketer, that makes me really think about what is going to change for our audiences, what's going to change about their mindsets, their needs, all of those sort of things. And I think that consumers are going to be emboldened to hold brands accountable to have values that align with them and then to actually act on those values. And as a marketer who spends so much of their time just trying to convince brands that values matter, it will be nice for that to be a little bit of a given, at least for the time being, let's hope. Because I think that people are going to expect to see values and it's not just going to be in black and white videos talking about values, but really like how is your product being produced? How are you treating your employees? How are you, you doing all of those elements? And that if you are in an agency, if you're a consultant, if you're a marketer, that's where it gets really exciting, I think, to be working on brand foundations. And I think we're just going to get some really interesting products and services coming out of this moment in time. Um, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, I love that. I couldn't agree more. A, uh, a reset button definitely half been hit. So yeah. I think that's just a good enough place as any to wrap up our chat for today. So Marie, thank you so much for coming on, talking a little bit about what you're up to and kind of your ethos on simplicity and brand building. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Keen. I got a quick question for you that I'd like you to ask yourself. How good is your professional output? You know, those decks and deliverables that you spend so much time working on. Are they where you think they should be or do they need a little bit of help? Could they perhaps look a little nicer or tell a little bit better story? Now, everything we talk about on the Things We Make podcast has to eventually be put into writing, slapped onto a slide and presented to someone for approval or buy-in. Now, if your decks are anything less than stellar, head to deliverablecoaching.com to start learning how you can level up your professional output today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.